0: as we continue to look at this text in 1 Peter together this morning, we look to the Lord to teach us from it a very hard but very important truth, and that is the call of the Christian life is to suffer. You and I could easily rebel against that idea. We certainly resist that idea. We have it in our heads because of the the pseudo-church and counterfeit teaching of today, that somehow our lives are intended to be all blessing, that all things that we experience should be good, a trouble-free, problemless life. And this really fits well with the region of the world in which we live, doesn't it? We're taught from youth, from a very young age, that we're better than the rest of the world, and so we deserve better. The reality is for those who are in Christ, perhaps in some senses, it's more difficult to live in a culture like this, to grasp the truths of the scripture without superimposing some kind of americanized idea on its text. But we have the great privilege of being indwelt by the spirit of God who would bring conviction to us when we stray from what the bible actually teaches. And find ourselves enriched and encouraged and strengthened by others who hold to a belief in the sufficiency of the word of God. The word of God is not the reader's digest. It's not an encyclopedia. It's not a self-help book. It's not about you feeling better about you. It is about you understanding the character of God that you would trust him. And ultimately, that the blessings that you enjoy for all eternity would in turn result in His glory. And we have the great privilege to have been predestined for that. This is the the teaching of the Scripture in every book of the Bible. God is sovereign. And yet man, in his willful and prideful bent, wants to believe that he has a free will, that he somehow can affect the outcome of his eternity In terms of what God has predestined and predetermined, he wants to do away with all those texts that point to the reality and even say explicitly in clear and crystal terms that God has predestined some for salvation. He fights against that. Man does not want to believe what God has said about himself. He does everything he possibly can to rescue God from his own message. And therefore, he pollutes and clouds that message for other people who are already selfishly bent, thinking that they somehow deserve better than what they're actually getting, when in fact, they deserve far worse. We are born in sin, conceived in sin, David says in Psalm 51. There is no one who is righteous, no, not one. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to choose Christ even. And it takes a real twisting of the scripture to make dead mean something other than dead. And so, if we are to suffer, we ought to be willing to grasp the reality that that suffering is an opportunity for us to display the glory of Christ and how we respond to it. Peter is writing here to people who are owned by other people. He's writing to house slaves, those who are under the imprisonment, the captivity of of others. And they're Christians. Those to whom he writes are Christians. And so he doesn't say anything to them about, you know, standing up for yourself, letting people know that you deserve better. It's all about suffering with endurance and with patience, And it would be one thing to suffer in a circumstance where you deserve the suffering. Peter has made it very clear to us. You don't get any credit for that. That's the word he uses. There is no credit for suffering when you have sinned. But what we are called to do is suffer in essence when we don't deserve it. In other words, for things that we haven't done. And we have the ultimate and perfect example in our Lord Jesus Christ who kept his mouth shut when he was reviled against, when he suffered, when he was insulted, when he was beaten, when he was scourged, and when he was killed. And yet, you still have those who sit under sound Bible teaching who want to believe that man has a free will. that Somehow he deserves better because he chose what he chose. It's absolutely uncanny that we somehow would be willing to take even a sliver of credit for what God has accomplished. It's tragic. But as we look at this text this morning, my hope is that you and I would be humbled by it, that we would be humbled by the greatness of God who blesses those who are undeserving, and yet somehow or another, we still find ourselves willing to try to steal back some of that glory, that we would see him to be great and that we are not. Last week in this text, and let me just read to you from the passage. I'll read the passage and then I'll do somewhat of a review of where we were last week. First Peter 2, verses 21 to 23. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. We told you last week from Acts 14, verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So this is really the foundational reality. Those who are predestined to enter the kingdom of God are predestined for tribulation. Paul says it this way in Philippians 1, verse 29, that you have been granted belief But you have been granted suffering. Why? For his sake. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There will be persecution for those who desire to be like God, those who desire to represent the character of God. There will be persecution. My wife and I, in the early days of our marriage, my wife especially, were working through the theology of how to handle familial persecution. And we decided that we would trust the Lord. We wouldn't talk a lot about what had happened or what was going on. And the great blessing that we experienced, as it resulted in my wife being quick to remember this passage. It brings me great joy when I hear her quote this verse to others. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you experience various trials. Why? Well, there's an outcome. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What do you lack? What is it that you don't have? What is it that you need that you don't have? Whatever it is, it is the result of a lack of spiritual completion. There needs to be an increasing willingness on our parts to acknowledge the fact that we are not yet complete in Christ. He's completing us. He's perfecting us. He is maturing us, and he's doing it through trials. It's a great joy to trust him in the midst of that. So the three points from last week, we won't back, go back through all the details of this as we spent much time on it, but hopefully uh, you, if you weren't here last Sunday or if you were serving in the children's ministry, you've had a chance to listen to it on the website. If not, I strongly encourage you in particular to listen to this message. It's absolutely crucial that if we as a church are going to be effective to see people one to Christ, that we trust in God's sovereignty in all things. To define God's sovereignty as Being sovereign over the good things, but not the bad things, is a gross spiritual error. God is sovereign over all things. That's what sovereign means. He's not partially sovereign. He is completely sovereign over all things. Therefore, we trust him. But because of this, we can say, as you remember from last week, point number one, expect to suffer. Expect to suffer. If you're not convinced that you should expect to suffer, then I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the message from last week as we repeatedly went over passage after passage after passage after passage that revealed God's sovereignty in your and my suffering. God has sovereignly decreed that our suffering would take place for his glory, for our good, and for the evangelism of the lost. If you're still fighting against that, then trust me, you will be completely ineffective in God's call upon your life to be seen as different from the world. The world says things like, well, how can God be sovereign over evil? How's that fair? Of course the world thinks that. But as you and I continue to faithfully simply read our Bibles, much less study them, you can't deny the reality that passage after passage, chapter after chapter, book after book, theology after theology, focuses on the reality that God is in fact sovereign in all the details. Friends, this is simply a matter of spiritual maturity. I've been in the ministry for over 25 years. And my great experience, my great joy, my great privilege has been to watch those who kick against this, they fight against this, they don't want to believe it, they can't believe it, they've been taught quite differently, but the more they humbly and faithfully surround themselves with Bible readers and people who are truly devoted to the Scripture, the more they eventually yield and they give in to what the Bible says time and time and time and time again. I literally can count hundreds of people that I've known throughout the years, and I'm one of them. Who fought this passionately. How can God be sovereign in my pain? How could he ordain something that I don't like if he loves me? It is because my life is not about me. It is about me recognizing just how short I fall of displaying the character of God. Therefore, suffering brings me back to the place, it should bring us back to the place where we are centered on choosing whether or not we will trust the Lord. Do we believe what the Lord has said about himself, about mankind, about the gospel, about suffering? Do we believe those things? Or on the other hand, do we believe what we bring to the scripture? That is such a destructive pattern in the lives of Christians. When we come to the scripture, Being firmly committed to what we believe because we believe it, and we've believed it for a long time, we refuse to see what's simply and plainly there. Again, we hamstring ourselves spiritually. You don't want to do that. You want to be effective. You want to be faithful. Expect to suffer. Peter says it this way, you've been called for this purpose. For you have been called. Called by God. Called by the Father for this purpose purpose the purpose of suffering you remember from genesis 50 verse 20 joseph says to his abusive brothers who sold him into slavery really attempted to kill him what you meant for evil against me god meant for good literally what you intended for evil god intended for good god is sovereign And you can expect to suffer because he has sovereignly decreed that you will. Point number two, know that Christ suffered for you. You see, that's a game changer. That changes everything. When we say, oh, my word, I'm called to suffer. Well, what's that all about? But we recognize the fact that the Savior who did not deserve to suffer, suffered for you, right? He suffered on your behalf. He chose suffering so that he would receive that suffering for you. How then, back to point one, how then can I reject his sovereign ordination of suffering in my life? He ordained that at the hands of sinful, evil men, he predetermined in eternity past that his son would be executed at the hands of evil, wicked, sinful men. How then Can we look at the suffering that we experience in the home or outside the home or wherever? How is it that we look at that suffering and feel as though we are able to demand better? He suffered for you. That's exactly what Peter says. Since Christ also suffered for you. Literally, specifically, individually. Don't see it any other way. He died for the body and he died for every member of the body. Point number three, suffer as he suffered. Not necessarily in the exact same details. I don't expect to see you hanging from a cross. That's probably not going to happen. I doubt very much that you'll be whipped with a cat of nine tails and have your skin ripped from your back. That's not what Peter is calling us to when he says, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, but that you would be willing to suffer However, however the suffering shapes out, that's how you would be willing to suffer. You would embrace it for exactly what it is. It's not to say that you're to run around looking for it. We pointed that out, right? That would be false martyrdom. It would be self-righteous. Look at me. I'm not only suffering, I'm, you know, I'm walking out in front of city buses just so I can suffer for the sake of Jesus. That's false pride. Uh, false humility, true pride. Suffer as he suffered. I pointed out last week that this, this term, hoopagraman that's translated as example, is an underwriting. Many times this term is used for educational circumstances where children were given some sort of drawing or writing to trace. So, that writing or that drawing that sits underneath, and then you've got a blank sheet of paper, right, that sits on top, and the child draws that out. Jesus, in his suffering, is as that underwriting, hupa graman, writing under. So, as a result, he who traces that then is arriving at a near exact picture of what that underwriting is, that writing underneath. So you're to see him that way, as if his life is that template. And you're to follow in his steps. It's a a wonderfully picturesque term, the idea, in his steps, that as he walked, you would walk. So these three points, then, I hope, are helpful to you in understanding this all-important text of Scripture that would set us up for this morning in completing it. Point number four, suffer with patient endurance. Suffer with patient endurance. Our text goes on in verse 22 to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ in this way, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. This morning we'll talk about what Jesus didn't do, but also talk about what he did do. Right now we want to talk about what he didn't do. In his example, these are things that he did not do. First, commit sin. He who committed no sin. Literally, sin he did not. There is no sin in him. One thief on the cross said to the other, And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Luke twenty three forty one in Hebrews four fifteen for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. This is what the Old Testament Jew had. He had a high priest who could not sympathize with his weaknesses because he hadn't suffered in all ways that every sinner had suffered. Suffered. He hadn't experienced the weaknesses to the degree that every sinner had experienced those weaknesses. But the writer of Hebrews says this is not the high priest that Jesus is. Jesus is not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. In fact, he is the one who has been tempted in all things and yet without sin. Tempted in all So, at the point where you start thinking, but he doesn't understand my problems, he doesn't understand the difficulties, he doesn't understand my suffering, the writer of Hebrews says that he suffered in all things, was tempted in all things, and yet without sin. It covers the basis. There's no experience, there's no circumstance that outweighs the difficulty or the suffering that you have or ever will experience. Hebrews 7 verse 26 for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest holy innocent interesting that these two terms are paired together in this phrase holy innocent what is holy? It's set apart <laughs> it's the opposite of unholy it's completely pure without any flaw but innocent innocent It says it in such a clear and practical way. He's innocent. He wasn't guilty. Undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What's that? It's a recognition of who he has been in eternity. Exalted above the heavens, the Great One, God himself. In verse uh, 22, Peter goes on with an Old Testament quote from Isaiah 53 and says, nor was any deceit Found in his mouth. It's a generic statement. He committed no sin. And then Peter gets very specific, and I think very wisely. Of course, all the scripture is from God, it's perfect in its detail. And yet you see the wisdom from time to time in certain efforts to expose the problem in man's response to God's sovereignty. He points to the reality that there is no sin in Christ, but then he gets detailed. Why? Because in many cases, you or I or whoever, anybody, lots of people, will find ourselves willing to you know, trust Jesus until difficulty sets in, whether it's self-inflicted or not. And we might be willing to say, well, you know, I went through that experience and I didn't sin. Well, let's talk about how Jesus didn't sin, because Peter talks specifically about how Jesus didn't sin. It says there was... There was not any deceit found in his mouth. This is from Isaiah 53, verse 9. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This literally, this term literally refers to a fish hook, a trap, to trick, snare, or bait by telling other people lies, by saying something that is simply not true. Again, why would Peter point this out? Why would Isaiah prophesy in this terminology with regard to the person of Jesus and how he would handle things? Because this is the first thing that so many people will often do. Immediately blame shift. Immediately start pointing the finger at other people. Immediately start saying, well, I handled that pretty well, but if it wasn't for him, everything would have gone great. You know, just ask yourself, is that, you know, be be moved by this. <laughs> Think of the, the certain reality that there are people who live their lives this way. Are you one of them? Are you inclined to even nicely? How about that? It's one thing when somebody rigidly and angrily and kind of abruptly points the finger at other people, but it's another thing when, when a guy will say something like, Well, you know, I, I handled that all pretty well, but you know, everything everybody else did, that was just terrible. But I'm, I, you know, I'm I'm dealing with it. I'm trusting Jesus through it. Really? It sounds like you're gossiping sounds like you're slandering that person that's what it sounds like but this term here uh, this idea of deceit found in one's mouth is the idea of of speaking dishonestly about someone else and Jesus never did that in his humanity you remember last week we pointed out the the importance of recognizing that in his humanity what he did was trusting the father the work of the spirit that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature That he was increasingly able, in his human weakness, to trust the Father. I think we destroyed the idea that he was the perfect human. He was not the perfect human. He was perfectly obedient. He displayed perfect obedience. But to say that it happened somehow magically, and it simply was because he was God, is to diminish the incarnation what he did for you and for me, he did as a man who walked by the Spirit and trusted his Father. <laughs> you see, now that kind of gets you and me back into the corner of responsibility. Now let's look at what Jesus did. Let's look at how Jesus responded to persecution. Let's look at how Jesus responded to vile threats and even beatings and even crucifixion. How did he? Re- well, he was God. If we just say, well, you know, he was Jesus, I've heard, I've had people tell me this. He was man. He was 100% man. Lengthy pause so you can think about that. And if you're wondering, is he going to say that he's 100% God? Of course I am. (laughs) Because he is 100% God and has always been. And that's the miracle of the incarnation. But if you think that he was somehow more 100% God than 100% man, you've missed the point. The whole point of the incarnation was that he would experience weakness and not be a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He did what he did out of love for us. And we are called, therefore, to suffer with patient endurance just as he did. The text goes on to say that while being reviled, he did not revile in return. What is this term, revile? Revile simply verbal abuse. It's to insult someone. Speech is given forth for the purpose of causing pain, causing damage, causing hurt. Could Jesus have done that? Could that have been his intent? Could he have said things rightly so? Well, there were times where certainly he rebuked The false believers, particularly false teachers, and in doing so, when he did that, it was his effort to scathe them, but to do so with truth. But it was never done with intent to hurt or harm. It was done with the intention of exposing reality. The passage goes on to say, while suffering, he uttered no threats. While suffering he uttered no threats. Now put yourself into that circumstance where you have been suffering, whether it's recently or not so recently or maybe what the future might hold. Now think of it, it's one thing for you and I to not utter threats, it's one thing for him to not utter threats, because he could. He could say, well, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And perhaps that entered his mind, but he didn't say it. And by doing so, he displays the example that you and I are to follow. While he suffered, he didn't look at them and say, just so you know, yours is coming. (laughs) Did he know that? Did he believe that? Well, certainly. Certainly. And yet his heart was one of compassion for them. What did Jesus experience in his heart when he looked upon the multitudes, many of whom would be bringing about his execution? What was his heart attitude toward the multitudes? It was one of compassion. It wasn't one of threats. It wasn't a how dare you, don't you know who I am? You and I can think those thoughts. How, How could you possibly treat me that way when I've been so good to you? In Matthew 27, we see the record of this. Here's how it goes. Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him it is as you say and while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders he did not answer then Pilate said to him do you not hear how many things they testify against you and he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge so the governor was quite amazed well that was unusual for someone to be accused of whatever and not take an opportunity to give a defense for himself but one of the reasons the governor was quite amazed we'll see is that he wasn't guilty. I mean, everybody everybody, you know, wants to explain how they're not guilty. Here's a guy who is not guilty and doesn't say a word. Verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Christ, for he knew that because of envy they had handed him over." You see that, he knew he wasn't guilty, he knew that it was envy, that he was stealing their show in essence, at least that's what they thought. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, "'Have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him." Conviction. There was an awareness, somehow, somewhere, she had heard of his righteousness, perhaps God gave her the dream that was still happening in this era, and the result was that she was scared of what? What was she scared of? What's the one thing she says about him? His righteousness. She fears his righteousness. Honey, stay away from that guy. He's too good. He's going to expose everything. This is really going to be a problem. Just get away from him, whatever it takes. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him, kill him, he's too righteous, we can't bear it, I want nothing to do with this righteous man, and he said why, what evil has he done, but they kept shouting all the more saying crucify him, don't ask questions, don't bother us with the facts, kill him, When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Scourged? He had, he had already firmly established that he wasn't guilty. Fear of man, obviously no fear of God. And, and yet, the absolute, precisely, perfect, sovereignly decreed opportunity for the Savior to endure suffering with patience. Why? For you. For you. He suffered for you. He suffered as an example for you. So the text says how, do, how does this work in the home? Todd, thanks for all this rich theology, but, you know, don't get into my kitchen. We'll deal with this in more detail in the coming weeks. But in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, after telling wives to submit to their husbands and win them over without a word, and telling husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, Peter says, to sum up, Put it in a nutshell. All of you be harmonious. You, some of you noticed this morning, those singing were singing with harmony. You kinda gotta know what you're doing to pull that off. If you don't, don't try. It's not pretty. Take some voice lessons. You'll, you'll get there eventually. But harmony, musically speaking, harmony is something that sets music into a different realm. It's one thing to hear beautiful music. It's one thing to hear songs sung well. It's another thing to hear them sung with a team spirit in such a way that one person is singing one series of notes and another singing another series of notes, and they're not the same, and yet it works. That's how Peter says that we are to live in the home and sympathetic. Sympathetic. Thinking of your spouse's difficulties, whatever they may be. Maybe a hard day. Maybe a hard life. And maybe being married to you. <laughs> right? Brotherly. You know, a natural Christian love. You know, cultivate that. Kind hearted. Humble in spirit. not returning evil for evil or insult for insult suffer with patient endurance you say i don't need practice suffering with patient endurance in the world i get plenty of that at home some point along the way, your spouse is gonna sin. I do a lot of marriage counseling or have over the years, premarital, post-marital, post-marital, that's not the right word, uh, (laughs) during marital. And I've had people say to me, you know, we never argue. And I say, you are so funny. (laughs) The home is a great place to learn to trust the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's what that whole section in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is about. It's all about idolatry. And here he gets very practical, theologically practical, and says, you know, you've never experienced a temptation that somebody else hasn't experienced. It's not, it's not exclusive to you. You're not that special that God somehow has a, a, an exclusively fingerprinted plan for your suffering that's much different from anybody else's, really. But he has provided the way of escape. Why? So that you can endure it, Friends, please don't think that I'm telling you to justify your spouse's sin or anyone else's. I'm not saying that at all. And when I say good that you're experiencing suffering, I say good that you have an opportunity to display Christ in your home. In Mark 14 verse 53, they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. You see that? There was a deliberate, strategic effort to find things about Jesus that he had done wrong. They weren't finding any. I mean, they were working hard at it, and it wasn't coming together for them. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. See, they were kind of running into each other with contradicting one another's false accusations. That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. When someone's completely innocent, you make up stuff, it's going to contradict what other people have made up because none of it's true some stood up and began to give false testimony against him saying we heard him say i will destroy this temple made with hands and in three days i will build another made without hands not even in this respect was their testimony consistent the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned jesus saying do you not answer what is it that these men are testifying against you But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists, and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. See, this is, this is abuse. This is beyond slander. It's beyond insult. It's physical mistreatment. In Luke nine twenty-three. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Can you suffer with patient endurance? Or do you believe that you must defend yourself? You must set the record straight. People are saying things that aren't true. I got to straighten them out. Is that your M.O., set the record straight? Or do you find it a privilege? Do you find it a blessing that you are called to walk in his steps? that he has given you a perfect example. And that perfect example is one that did not return revile for revile, insult for insult. It did not result in threats while suffering. You see those moments of suffering, those times of abuse, those times of insult, those times of slander, as opportunities to suffer with patient endurance. Point number five. And I believe this is really the glory of the book of 1 Peter. This is the point of Peter's heart. This is where he is headed. He hits this and he bounces off of it with all kinds of other instructions, directions, commands. It's all rooted in this. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This is why he could endure the cross for the joy that was set before him, because he knew that his father judged justly. The father cannot do that which is unjust. This term entrusting here is to to give over. It's the same term used of Judas when the Roman soldiers are with him and he betrays Jesus. He gives him over. Jesus gives himself over to the father, to the one who judges righteously. The term means to grant, to give from one hand to another. And so in Luke 22 verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. How, how really? How's that? How are their wills different? I thought they are one. Jesus said, I and the Father are one because he became a man and he divested himself. He separated himself from his deified prerogatives. He did not stop being God for an instant ever, never will, never has. He couldn't. God can't be not God. But God became a man and temporarily, momentarily for his time on the earth, while he ministered on the earth, he divested himself. He separated himself from his deified prerogatives So there are things he does not know because he chose not to know them. Your will is best, Father. You're the righteous judge. You cannot do that which is unrighteous. My role is to trust you. I came to do your will. You and I are to follow in his footsteps. You and I are to see him as our example. 1 Peter 4, verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God... It's God's sovereignty in your suffering, my suffering. Those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust, same word, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Not doing what is wrong while no one's looking and doing what is right while people are looking on. They're not trying to rework God. God's word. They're not trying to save him from what he has said about himself. They're not trying to escape suffering for the sake of escaping suffering. They're willing to embrace suffering and say, this is what the Lord will use to conform me to his image. But he will entrust himself. He will turn himself over to the one who judges righteously. That's what you and I are to do, to always do what is right. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently, endure it, this finds favor with God. This finds favor with God because God has willed that you would suffer and you're going to suffer. You're going to be harshly treated. How will you endure it? Will you endure it with patience? Will you trust the righteous judge in the midst of it? You know this verse, many of you, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, on your own judgment, your own ability to assess things. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Although Jesus was being harshly treated, he knew that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He knew that his father would rectify everything. D. Edmund Hebert says he was subjected to severe physical sufferings. He was struck in his face, crowned with thorns, beaten with a reed, scourged, forced to bear his own cross and crucified. Yet through it all, he never threatened. Why? Why? How could he keep his mouth shut? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. What are you inclined to trust in and trust yourself to when you are mistreated? Be honest. Think it through. I'm not asking you to answer out loud, but think about it. Where does your mind go? Are you trusting you to be able to to rectify things, to straighten the record? How about this? Are you trusting the person that eventually they're going to be smart enough to agree with what you've already said? Many times we entrust ourselves to those who we're arguing with, believing that that person is eventually going to be able to agree with me, so I'm going to pound them into it. Trust psychology. By the way, where was the church 200 years ago without psychology? Ever think of that? Christian psychology, it's an oxymoron born out of the idea that man is basically good, contrary to everything the scripture says about man? You trust food, medication? I don't know what the stats are now regarding how much money is spent on anxiety medication, but it's a lot. And it's a tragic reality that there are those in the church who trust in medication rather than trusting in the Lord. But Jesus wasn't looking for a Ridland prescription, what was he doing? He was entrusting himself to the one who judged righteously. Was anyone ever more abused than Jesus? You say, well, you don't, you don't know what I've been through. Was anyone ever abused more than Jesus? What did Jesus trust in? Jesus trusted the Father. Why? Because the Father was trustworthy. Where's your trust? You trust in the movies? How about this? You trust in people. And yeah, you want to surround yourself with people who are in fact trustworthy, but is there a person who is your ultimate go-to and not the Lord? Is the Holy Spirit your counselor? Trusting in the Father with regard to the fact that he loves you and he has the very best for you, where is your trust? Do you know that by trusting in something or someone other than the righteous judge, you forsake the blessings of trusting him? What are you turning to? That is resulting in a lack of blessing from the Lord. What are you think of it? What are you saying to the Lord when you turn to something other than Him in the midst of your suffering? Abuse, slander, whatever difficulty you're experiencing. What are you saying to the Lord? How do you think He's going to deal with you in that regard, that you're rejecting the reality that he has said he is trustworthy. Exodus 20 verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. How could the son trust the father this way? The passage tells us that he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. He trusted his perfect sovereign righteousness. No one else is trustworthy, no one, not like this, not like he is. He is trustworthy. He will avenge all evil. He will care for you. He will provide for you. He can only do that which is righteous and cannot do what is unrighteous. He can only do what is good. He cannot do evil. But he can use evil. He can use it. He can even intend it. He can even ordain it. Friends, this is polarizing truth. But when it gets down to this issue, the need for you to suffer with patient endurance, this is what results in spiritual maturity. It results in effective evangelism. It results in responsibility. results in a willingness to live your life in such a way that exhibits God's holiness despite the fact that man is going to do all kinds of things to produce fear in you, to convince you to do otherwise. You see, you and I can trust the father and remain silent while being insulted, slandered, and while suffering because he's sovereign. How much more amazing that our example did not sin, was tempted to the full, and gave himself over to his father who judges righteously. How much more amazing that he trusted the father when he could have made change take place in the moment and yet Are you and I inclined to do at times? To trust self, to break out of the circumstance, to change the circumstances. I just want the circumstances to change. Christ was willing to receive his father's will because his father was sovereign over evil that resulted in his suffering. Why? That we may walk in his steps. That we would have his example. After the death of his wife, George Mueller said, I miss my wife in numberless ways and shall miss her yet more and more. But as a child of God and as a servant of the Lord Jesus, I bow. I'm satisfied with the will of my heavenly father. I seek by perfect submission to his holy will to glorify him and kiss continually the hand that has thus afflicted me. The right perspective. What do you know about George Mueller? An evangelistic machine. Why? He trusted the Lord. He trusted in God's sovereignty and ministered to orphans and so effectively many came to Christ. For a man who is suffering, he requires much more than better circumstances to attain joy. The joy that he thinks he will have by changed circumstances will only result in awareness of the fact that nothing will bring him joy. He must know that God who is sovereign is also trustworthy. God who is sovereign in your suffering is also trustworthy. The suffering that you endure is for his glory but for your better good, your conformation to the person of Christ, but that you would ultimately experience the joy that he has set apart for you. John Calvin said, no one will calmly and quietly submit to bear the cross except those who have learned to seek their happiness beyond this world. When you have a small God, a low view of God, your suffering suddenly becomes completely and only about those who are used by God to achieve it. Peter says at the beginning of this letter, those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. To obey Jesus Christ, chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ which is really, really easy to feign in certain circles. Verse 3. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where's your hope? Are you trusting in him? Trusting in the Father? Trusting in something you've done? Conclude with Romans 5, or 6 for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, some would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Father, we thank you for the great kindness that you have shown us in giving us your Son. We have looked today at a genuinely polarizing section of Scripture. There are those who will trust the Father up to a point. And it is certainly true that all of us are guilty of distrusting the Father. Lord, help us to acknowledge, even as the Savior did, that you are trustworthy. You judge righteously. You are an impartial judge. We ask that you would make us humble, that we would be a people who are willing to genuinely and honestly believe what your word says, not make it say something it doesn't, to take the hard truths with the truths that are not so hard, believing that it is all clear, yet some of it is more difficult, it's difficult because we're not you. Lord, we ask for your kindness. We ask that as we worship you now, that you would help us to adhere to the command to teach one another with sound doctrine. Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, that we would sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Lord, that your glory would be known, and we ask all these things for just that, for your great glory. Amen.